Welcome to Open World. I'm TK. And I'm Rose. And we're your hosts. Okay, TK, this is the first episode. Listeners are probably like, what is this? What is Open World? What are we doing here? Great question. (laughs) Open World is this show right here, right now, but it's about the future. It's about science. It's about technology and finding the hope in all of that in such a tough time right now, you know? Yeah, hope. I've heard some people have that sometimes. I feel like it's not something I have regularly, but that's what we're here for. Okay, so this is the first episode. And before we get into the first episode, I think we probably should do a little bit of like housekeeping, maybe a little bit of history before we go to the future. So the first thing that we want to say is that we started making Open World a while ago. (laughs) And in fact, we sort of got pretty far in the production process before any of this started happening. Yeah, we started this show last year at a company called Glitch. And then the pandemic happened. And then the layoffs happened for so many people. And then the lawyers happened, which, you know, always takes a while. But but the bright side, the hope, the good, happy thing here is that we are still bringing you this show, we're here, it's happening, we're making it happen. After so many trials and tribulations, which kind of is fitting for, you know, the times right now. Yes. But what you're about to hear over the course of this season are eight ruminations on hope, eight pieces that we selected specifically for your ears, eight things that we think really illustrate the ways that, you know, we can all think about, explore, and create better futures. So every episode you're going to hear two things. Uh, The first thing is an audio drama uh, created by some amazing artists. And then after that, we are going to follow up with a conversation with those artists about their work, their thoughts on the future, and what they were the most hopeful about when we talked to them. And on this episode, you'll hear from the incredible Mm. N.K. Jemison three-time Hugo Award winner. Not a big deal at all. No, no. Just a kind Uh, of a big deal. (laughs) I mean, you know, just a tiny bit. And Anil Dash, the CEO of Glitch. So what we're going to start with is a reading from The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. We got some sweet scoring and sound design as well in there just to surprise you. Let's get into it. This segment actually takes place within the prologue of The City We Became, in which uh, our protagonist, um, who is a young homeless black guy who um, discovers that he is the the potential living embodiment uh, of New York. His job is basically to be the midwife um, that helps the city make a, a magical transition into sentience. Um, he begins to realize that he's in maybe some danger and should be ready for a fight. Libraries are safe places. They're warm in the winter. Nobody cares if you stay all day as long as you're not eyeballing the kids' corner or trying to hit up porn on the computers. The one at 42nd, the one with the lions, isn't that kind of library. It doesn't lend out books. Still, it has a library safety, so I sit in a corner and read everything within reach. Municipal tax law, birds of the Hudson Valley, what to expect when you're expecting a city baby, NYC edition. See, Paolo? I told you I was listening. It gets close to noon and I head outside. People cover the steps, laughing, chatting, mugging with selfie sticks. There are cops in body armor over by the subway entrance, showing off their guns to the tourists so they'll feel safe from New York. 
I get a Polish sausage and eat it at the feet of one of the lions. Fortitude, not patience. I know my strengths. I'm full of meat and relaxed and thinking about stuff that ain't actually important, like how long Paolo will let me stay and whether I can use his address to apply for stuff. So I'm not watching the street until cold prickles skitter over my side. I know what it is before I react, but I'm careless again because I turn to look. Stupid, stupid, I fucking know better. Cops down in Baltimore broke a man's spine for making eye contact. But as I spot these two on the corner opposite the library steps, short pale man and tall dark woman, both in blue like black, I notice something that actually breaks my fear because it's so strange. It's a bright clear day, not a cloud in the sky. People walking past these cops leave short, stark afternoon shadows, barely there at all. But around these two, the shadows pool and curl, as if they stand beneath their own private roiling thundercloud. And as I watch, the shorter one begins to stretch, sort of, his shape warping ever so slightly, until one eye is twice the circumference of the other. His right shoulder slowly develops a bulge that suggests a dislocated joint. His companion doesn't seem to notice. Yo, nope. I get up and start picking my way through the crowd on the steps. I'm doing that thing I do, trying to shunt off their gaze, but it feels different this time. Sticky, sort of. Threads of cheap shit gum fucking up my mirrors. I feel them start following me, something immense and wrong shifting in my direction. Even then, I'm not sure. A lot of real cops drip and pulse sadism in the same way, but I ain't taking chances. My city is helpless, unborn as yet, and Paolo ain't here to protect me. I gotta look out for self, same as always. I play casual till I reach the corner and book it, or try. Fucking tourists. They idle along the wrong side of the sidewalk, stopping to look at maps and take pictures of shit nobody else gives a fuck about. I'm so busy cussing them out in my head that I forget they can also be dangerous. Somebody yells and grabs my arm as I Heisman passed, and I hear a man yell out, He tried to take her purse! as I wrench away. Bitch, I ain't took shit, I think, but it's too late. I see another tourist reaching for her phone to call 911. Every cop in the area will be gunning for every black male age whatever now. I gotta get out of the area. Grand Central's right there, sweet subway promise, but I see three cops hanging out in the entrance, so I swerve right to take 41st. The crowds thin out past Lex, but where can I go? I sprint across third despite the traffic. There are enough gaps. But I'm getting tired because I'm a scrawny dude who doesn't get enough to eat, not a track star. I keep going, though, even through the burn in my side. I can feel those cops, the harbingers of the enemy, not far behind me. The ground shakes with their lumpen footfalls. I hear a siren about a block away, closing. Shit, the UN's coming up. I don't need the Secret Service or whatever on me, too. I jag left through an alley and trip over a wooden pallet. Lucky again. A cop car rolls by the alley entrance just as I go down, and they don't see me. I stay down and try to catch my breath till I hear the car's engine fading into the distance. Then, when I think it's safe, I push up. Look back. Because the city is squirming around me. The concrete is jittering and heaving. Everything from the bedrock to the rooftop bars is trying its damnedest to tell me to go. 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 Crowding the alley behind me is... is... the shit? I don't have words for it. Too many arms, too many legs, too many eyes, and all of them fixed on me. 
Somewhere in the mass I glimpse curls of dark hair and a scalp of pale blonde, and I understand suddenly that these are, this is, my two cops, one real monstrosity. The walls of the alley crack as it oozes its way into the narrow space. Oh, fuck, no, I gasp. I claw my way to my feet and haul ass. A patrol car comes around the corner from 2nd Avenue and I don't see it in time to duck out of sight. The car's loudspeaker blares something unintelligible, probably I'm gonna kill you, and I'm actually amazed. Do they not see the thing behind me? Or do they just not give a shit because they can't shake it down for city revenue? Let them fucking shoot me, better than whatever that thing will do. I hook left onto 2nd Avenue. The cop car can't come after me against the traffic, but it's not like that'll stop some doubled cop monster. 45th. 47th and my legs are molten granite. 50th and I think I'm gonna die. Heart attack, far too young. Poor kid, should have eaten more organic. Should have taken it easy and not been so angry. The world can't hurt you if you just ignore everything that's wrong with it. Well, not until it kills you anyway. I cross the street and risk a look back and see something roll onto the sidewalk on at least eight legs, using three or four arms to push itself off of a building as it careens a little before coming straight after me again. It's the Mega Cup, and it's gaining. Oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, please no. Only one choice. Swing right, 53rd against the traffic. An old folks home, a park, a promenade, fuck those. Pedestrian bridge, fuck that. I head straight for the six lanes of utter bat shittery and potholes that is FDR Drive. Do not pass go, do not try to cross on foot unless you want to be smeared halfway to Brooklyn. Beyond it, the East River, if I survive. I'm even freaked out enough to try swimming in that fucking sewage. But I'm probably going to collapse in the third lane and get run over 50 times before anybody thinks to put on brakes. Behind me, the mega cop utters a wet, tumid like it's clearing its throat for swallowing. I go. Over the barrier and through the grass into fucking hell I go. One lane, silver car. Two lanes, horns, horns, horns. Three lanes, semi. What's a fucking semi doing on the FDR? It's too tall, you stupid upstate hick. Screaming, four lanes, green taxi screaming, smart car. <laughs> Cute. Five lanes, moving truck. Six lanes, and the blue Lexus actually brushes up against my clothes as it blares past. Screaming, 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 screaming. Screaming, metal, and tires as reality stretches. And nothing stops for the mega cop. It does not belong here, and the FDR is an artery, vital with the movement of nutrients and strength and attitude and adrenaline. The cars are white blood cells, and the thing is an irritant, an infection, an invader to whom the city gives no consideration and no quarter. Screaming, as the mega cop is torn to pieces by the semi and the taxi and the Lexus and even that adorable smart car, which actually swerves a little to run over an extra wiggly piece. I collapse onto a square of grass, breathless, shaking, wheezing, and can only stare as a dozen limbs are crushed, two dozen eyes squished flat, a mouth that is mostly gums, riven from jaw to palate. The pieces flicker like a monitor with an AV cable short, translucent to solid and back again. But FDR don't stop for shit except a presidential motorcade or a Knicks game. And this thing sure as hell ain't Carmelo Anthony. Pretty soon, there's nothing left of it but half-real smears on the asphalt. I'm alive. Oh, God. I cry for a little while. Mama's boyfriend ain't here to slap me and say I'm not a man for it. Daddy would have said it was okay. Tears mean you're alive. 
but Daddy's dead, and I'm alive. With limbs burning and weak, I drag myself up, then fall again. Everything hurts. Is this that heart attack? I feel sick. Everything is shaking, blurring. Maybe it's a stroke. You don't have to be old for that to happen, do you? I stumble over to a garbage can and think about throwing up into it. There's an old guy lying on the bench, me in 20 years if I make it that far. He opens one eye as I stand there gagging and purses his lips in a judgy way like he could do better dry heaves in his sleep. He says, it's time, and rolls over to put his back to me. Time. Suddenly, I have to move. Sick or not, exhausted or not, something is pulling me. West, toward the city center. I push away from the can and hug myself as I shiver and stumble toward the pedestrian bridge. As I walk over the lanes I previously ran across, I look down onto flickering fragments of the dead megacop, now ground into the asphalt by a hundred car wheels. Some globules of it are still twitching, and I don't like that. Infection. Intrusion. I want it gone. We want it gone. Yes, it's time. sweet so good she has such a great way of making new york city sound alive how did you like that yeah totally right and like even just in the language and the words you know i you are living in new york city now tk i am no longer living in new york city so it was somewhat nostalgic for me to like hear you know new yeah. york city in this very living way right and it is like a, a being right like new york city is yeah. a creature in the book um and in that in that clip which i thought was like really great and incredible it's such great tension and just uh nk really does it every time every time it's amazing it's almost like she's so good at what she does <laughs> what three-time hugo award winner who who'd have thunk it oh. um <laughs> i do have one question that people might be wondering mm -hmm. And maybe NK and Anil will answer this in the interview, but like they might not see this as hopeful. Yeah. It's funny when we asked NK to do this and asked like, hey, is there anything hopeful you want to read from? She was like, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Ho hopeful. <laughs> interesting question. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. And, and what you will hear in the interview is talking about, you know, as a writer, does she think about creating a specifically hopeful narrative on purpose. And, you know, she answers that question in the interview. So you'll just have to keep listening. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, I think to me, though, in some ways, there is a hopefulness in a place and a person being seen, even if the if the actual sort of reflection back isn't beautiful, right? There is some hope in sort of recognition and being seen as sort of a complete and full creature or place. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And I think I see it as a a person writing a love letter to a New York we haven't seen in a, in a long time mm -hmm. and really loving it through its not so great parts, you yes, know? Yes, that's totally true. And I think in the book, it that comes through so clearly that like even amidst all of all of the you know, grittiness that makes New York and all of the struggles that New York has right now with gentrification and with inequality and all of these things, that there is still something worth fighting for, which I think is that hopeful layer in the book and in the reading. Well, I think it's time to listen to the words come from the mouths yes. of more expert people than us. 
But first, a short commercial break. And when we come back, a conversation with N.K. Jemison and Anil Dash. Welcome to Open World. I am here with two amazing guests, Anil Dash, CEO of Glitch, and N.K. Jemison, a writer and three-time Hugo Award winner who has a new book out now called The City We Became, which is a delight. Um, thank you both for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. When we first started working on this show, obviously there was not a pandemic. And I will admit that it's been a little bit weird for me and personally at times to work on this while sort of being surrounded by a pretty dystopian situation. I'm curious how you think about the value and function of hope in a, in a time like this, where it feels maybe harder to be uh, hopeful <laughs> about what's happening or about the future. I mean, I think right now hope is basically the only thing that's going <laughs> to keep us from, you know, sliding into horrible depression and letting things get worse. So that's, that's you know, kind of useful there. Um, but uh, the thing that I have had to focus on is evidence of local people being sensible. Um, you know, even as I see, you know, kind of national foolishness, in some cases, international foolishness kind of uh, exacerbating a lot of what's been happening. It's the small stories of like just people helping each other that I need or I find that I'm, I'm sort of noticing more. There's a thing in New York where every evening people come out at around 7 p.m. and cheer healthcare providers in the area. And, you know, I went up on the roof last night of my building and, uh, you know, there's no hospital near me. We can hear sirens all the time. That is just, you know, the new normal here. But there were other people up on the roofs and like around seven o'clock, we all just started yelling. And, you know, I don't know that there were any healthcare professionals anywhere nearby uh, to hear this, but it was, it was a, a show of solidarity, nevertheless. And it was, it was just nice to see. Yeah, that's so resonant for me. Well, um, here. <laughs> yeah, you know, being in New York as well. I had spent, you know, a good bit of time feeling hope is this luxury and I'm privileged enough to have hope because I'm so comfortable while so many are not. And, and I think I've evolved a bit and, and it's, this is not me buttering you up about the book, but this is actually something when I read The City We Became that that actually resonated with me because I, I read it before mm -hmm. uh, we were, you know, socially distancing. And um, and it occurred to me that hope is a tool. Mm. And and it really feels like there is this thing that like hope is, you know, a a tool that we give each other and reify one another so that we can do the impossible. Mm. Nora, when when you're writing are you explicitly thinking about this is going to be a hopeful narrative or a not hopeful narrative, or is that not part of the calculus? Uh, it's not really part of the calculus. Um, you know, end of the day, I'm I'm just trying to tell uh, an, an interesting and engaging story, and sometimes that's not going to be a hopeful thing. But what I do also try to do is accurately depict the world that um, you know, if it's a created world, then then that world. Um, but in this case, you know, if I'm writing about New York City, I wanted to write about that. And New York has a lot of built-in hopefulness. Um, you know, there are a lot of sort of built-in small ways in which people cooperate and help each other and try to make life a little better. And that's, you know, I, I had to depict that if I'm going to accurately depict New York. 
Um, so that was really that was really it. And you'll noted this in it just now and also in, in his review um, that I sort of have had a sneak peek at a little bit um, is it is, really is kind of a love letter to a city um, and a city that is, as we've sort of talked about, being hit really hard right now in particular. I'm curious what it's like to have this book coming out now for you. Honestly, I I was surprised at first to hear people saying that they found so much resonance in it. And I'm like, but it's about gentrification. Um, but, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ills and evils that I'm talking about are kind of insidious socioeconomic things. Um, and then it kind of finally hit me that, you know, this pandemic is also an insidious socioeconomic thing. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we didn't have to be hit this bad. You know, this is this is uh, a, a the result of uh, decisions being made, um, not necessarily good decisions. And um, then I understood what congruity people were seeing in this. And it just sort of seemed... Um, it seemed a little like, you know, kind of reaching for, <laughs> reaching for resonance. Um, but then, you know, if, if you're describing a phenomenon that kind of works like a virus, if you're describing something like um, gentrification, which, which moves from neighborhood to neighborhood, house to house, building to building on a single block, you start to realize that these things are, are kind of like slow motion versions of uh, the same kind of pathogenic stuff we're seeing right now. So yeah, I mean, it's it's strange to suddenly have written a book that people are finding super resonant because I just wanted to describe kind of what life is already like. And what it kind of drives home to me is that we were already sort of living in a, in a, a crisis situation in a lot of ways. How do you kind of balance being hopeful or if not, you know, hopeful, at least sort of thinking about better versions of the future without being naive to kind of the realities of of what what we're dealing with? I don't know. I, I think um, I honestly find myself being willfully naive a lot and, and in a way that, uh, well, and I think this sort of alludes to what Nora was saying. There's a bit of a skepticism about hope or idealism, or these things. I, I think it's something to see as as a as a naive position. Um, if you express a a hopeful view, I think sometimes people see you as unsophisticated, or um, like earnestness is very condescended towards in culture. And so, so I think this, like you know, how do I be a hopeful person, an optimistic person, which I think I am, without uh, being naive, is like, well, why am I concerned about seeming naive? Mm. Right, I, I think the the worry is well, then somebody will see that you're a fool, or that you get duped, or you will get played, you will get hurt. And it's like in my experience, that happens anyway. Mm-hmm. Even when I've tried to be canny and savvy, and I'm slick and I'm all knowing, you still get hurt, you still get played, you still get fooled. Like it doesn't like you know. I guess the other you know, the more terrible way to put it is we're all naive. Sometimes we don't know it when we are. But I, I think I sort of let go of aspiring to to not being seen as naive. I'm like, well, it's indistinguishable from idealism. And, and in particular, I think this, you know, this often that that the hope and optimism are often ascribed to, to children, right? That's that's both in the positive sense, what we admire about kids, and also when we say adults are acting childish. Hmm. And um and and what they are definitionally is naive. They have not been experienced and they have not been hopefully hurt as egregiously as those of us that guard ourselves. And so when we aspire to the sort of a childlike sense of wonder, it's a childlike sense of naivete. There's a difference, though, between naivete and optimism, 
Mm-hmm. And there's something kind of grotesque, I think, about the way that optimism and positivity and I, I guess the desire for something better is constantly um, sort of lambasted and, and, and treated like something bad in our society. It is a position that is effectively kind of lazy. And, you know, it's sort of painting itself as wise and knowledgeable, but it's, but it's lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really people who maybe can't see a way out of the situation that we're in themselves. Um, they're despairing. And rather than allow other people to kind of think up something that, that is workable um, or something, you know, just, just to feel better, you know, they just kind of want to grab everybody and pull them down to wallow in misery with them. And I, there's something wrong with that. There's something really wrong with that. Yeah, there's definitely an aspect of like, you're not smart unless you're cynical. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get anywhere with that. In that vein, you know, in in sort of resisting the nihilism and, and the, the maybe lazy route of just sort of saying, well, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to care because there's nothing I can do. How do you two think about your roles in sort of pushing for a different way of thinking and, and a, a different kind of future? Like, how do you think about the work that you do and how it may or may not fit into those conversations? There's a tendency in our society to kind of, you know, make assumptions based on um, popular popular depictions of a thing. And there's certainly an agenda attached to um, the constant depiction of, oh, for example, uh, you know, New York City is this dirty, dangerous place full of crime and cars on fire and, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I travel down south a lot because I've got family in Alabama and I meet family and friends there. And a lot of times they're like, isn't it, isn't it hard to live in New York where it's so dangerous? <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, y'all got like guns in Walmart here. What the hell are you talking about? Um, you know, um, so, uh, you know, the idea of, of, of danger is, is definitely relative. And I want to depict, I want to depict reality. Reality, sure, there's dangers. Every place has dangers, but the, every place also has helpers. And every place also has people who are willing to fight to make a thing better. And that's not naive and that's not childish. That's just simply human nature. Societies don't stay the same. This situation that we are in too shall pass. And then when it does, maybe the world can get better. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with thinking that way. Anyone that has studied like a little bit of history understands that that is how societies work. That's so interesting. There is, there's that sort of motif that comes up in the book and without, you know, spoiling anything in specific, there, you know, uh, crises arise and, and there's a kind of reaction from a number of the characters at different points that are like, um, well, I've dealt with worse. You know what I mean? There's <laughs> sort of this sense of like, oh, I'm a New Yorker. I can handle this. And, 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 and I, I just, that felt so real because mm-hmm. like, I think we've all had that experience of like, I, I remember years ago seeing somebody faint on a subway platform and they, they sort of collapse and it's near the edge. And everybody sprung into action. Mm-hmm. Like literally every person on the platform immediately knew their role, knew what to do, mm-hmm. handled it, and the person was taken care of. And it was just like, you you actually, if you'd written down a plan, couldn't have coordinated it that well. Mm-hmm. You know? Wow. And there's a million stories like that, and we see them you know, every day now. And I think that's just such a, a capturing that that sense that is not visible because I, 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 would, I grew up in the sticks in like rural Pennsylvania and and was taught the myth of the dangerous New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the eighties New York and 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 that sort of comes up of like, you know, when when the subways had graffiti on them. And it's like, well, <laughs> there are worse things than art being in public space. Like you know what I mean? Like that wasn't actually 
a threat to me, but it, like I understand what it was supposed to signify, mm. and and to subvert that, I just think is so powerful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 nonsense. I mean, this is part of the problem when I when I say that there's kind of an agenda involved. You know, I I periodically open a particular newspaper in this town um, <laughs> that I won't mention, um, and I, I periodically open this paper just to kind of see you know what what the other other folks are thinking. And it's nothing but like, it's almost like a police blotter. It's like nothing but like crime stories of this person being awful to that person, um, you know, and these terrible people beat up an old man and da 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 There are no, there are none of these stories like what you described. There are none of these, you know, people sprang into action and helped this person who fell out on a subway platform. Um, you know, there, you don't see those stories getting the attention, but they happen just as often. There's a phrase that you learn in journalism school called, if it bleeds, it leads, which is what you're describing. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, let's, let's do like, yeah. it bled a little bit and then someone put a, put a, put a patch on it and then it was fine. Why don't we yeah, just summon right. that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I remember that day of journalism school and being like, oh no, what yeah. am I doing here? <laughs> this is maybe not the right path for me. Mm. So on this show, one of the things that has come up with a lot of the creators that we've talked to is the question around sort of who gets to imagine the future and who gets a seat at the table in constructing the future. And I'm curious how you two think about how we invite people into those spaces, um, whether that's imagining futures on the fictional side, whether that's building stuff for the future on the sort of tech side. But, you know, how do you think about the importance of accountability and sort of making sure that it's a, this kind of imagining is accessible to people. One of the biggest problems for me being somebody in technology is that tech founders, tech CEOs, tech visible leaders uh, are the ones who seem to have claimed mm -hmm. the cultural prerogative to define the future, mm -hmm. right? And the sort of the idea of like Elon Musk as the archetype <laughs> or whomever you want to point out as the archetype of who gets to choose what the future is going to be. Uh, is terrifying, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of reasons. There's, there's simply the the they don't know what they don't know, and I know firsthand from being in rooms and in conversations with them of, of seeing the short sightedness and just the lack of fluency in the world and in people's actual needs and concerns and and challenges. And so, you know, even so far as we say, oh, tech is going to shape the future, or you know, th th there's going to be this role. Obviously, technology is going to play a role, but I, I just think. Um, we have such a limited cultural imagination about who gets to say, this is the future, this is what a future could be. And even those people who are given that mantle so seldom are crediting the artists that influence them, the cultural figures that influence them, the activists that influence them, the educators that influence them. And, and that's um, we're all so much the worse off for that. So I, I, you know, my answer, like, answer, like, who should get to define this is like, oh, I know who it shouldn't be, <laughs> um, and 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 that, but at least that helps us get closer to maybe where it should be. I was listening to you, Anil, and and I was thinking, technology is a tool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is a tendency, especially in my uh, area, you know, in science fiction, fantasy, there is a tendency to imply that technology is the thing that changes us as a society but that's that's you know anybody who's who's worked in tech of any flavor obviously understands that that's not not the case um you know how technology gets used who has access to it yada 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 
um, is all dependent on how our society already works and, and what we value. Mm-hmm. You know, and in science fiction, there's been, like I said, this persistent kind of resistance to thinking about things beyond just the tech. The solution to that, at least in science fiction and fantasy, has been give more value to the social sciences. Um, remember that it's, yeah, it's science fiction, but physics is not the only science. Um, you know, software programming and, and hardware uh, engineering is not, these are not the only ways to do tech. <laughs> and it's been difficult. There's a resistance strain that does not like the idea of thinking about people. What is this thing, people? And it's it's a problem. Um, and it's a problem that's, you know, kind of representative or, or uh, microcosmic of American society as a whole. And the only thing that we can keep doing is sort of pushing back at this persistent, the tech will save us naivete, because that is a naive way of looking at the world. It is one that uh, people with a lot of resources and power seem to embrace so to them, it's, you know, the one wise way, the one true way to look at the world. But it is, it is naive in its own way. Um, like you said, Anil, they don't know what they don't know. But, you know, it's, it's important to understand that disruption in and of itself um, doesn't have to be created. You don't have to consciously try to disrupt things. When a lot of different voices are at the table, disruption occurs naturally because different people have different needs. Uh, the presumptions of, of the people in power are, are not going to um, turn out to be the one true way that things get done. And listening to those people is the way that disruption really should happen. And a lot of what we call disruption is really just like somebody, you know, pushing through a plan to try and make a little bit of profit for themselves and, you know, screw everybody else. TK and I have talked a lot about this um, when we were crafting the call for pitches for this and the call for the stuff we would include in the anthology, which is this, you know, there is hopefulness in the context that we're talking about, which is sort of recognizing the things that are happening and trying to imagine ways to make them better in a sort of more integrative approach. And then there's the hopefulness that sort of tech CEOs have, which is that the future will be born out of Elon Musk's forehead, mm-hmm. fully formed and perfect. And te- technologically, we can just fix our way out of it. And that is a form of hope, too. It's just a different mm. version of it. They think of themselves as optimists as well, right? Mm. That they think of themselves as people who are going to fix it. And, you know, shush, shush, shush with all your questions and all your, you know, considerations of those those humans that you mentioned uh, who are very pesky and don't fit our nice, nice little model bottle box that we've made. Um, and I hear from a lot of people, they say things like, oh, well, tech CEOs just need to read more science fiction. Oh, God, no. And I think that's actually not true. <laughs> I think they read lots of science fiction. It's just not the science fiction we want them to be reading. Yeah, yeah. they're reading the stuff that's that's horribly wrong about the future, <laughs> the 1950s crap, where, mm-hmm. you know, it's supposed to be set in uh, 2020 and everybody's got flying cars and internet and cell phones. Um, but women still work at home all the time and, and uh, you know, and children still defer to their fathers and the nuclear family still rules and things like alternate sexualities don't exist and black people still don't exist. And, you yeah. know, no. Yeah. They're no. reading plenty of science fiction. Yeah. They should stop, actually, yeah, should. <laughs> is my, really my, my argument. <laughs> Please stop reading science fiction. <laughs> um, so the last two questions are questions that we ask, we've asked everybody we've talked to for the show. Hmm. And I'll ask both of you to answer both of them. Um, The first one is, what is your favorite piece of hopeful media? It can be a song or a movie or anything, anything that makes you feel hopeful. 
Uh, I can take that one because I actually just replayed it recently. Video games are my favorite entertainment medium. And I uh, recently replayed, and I, I do it basically whenever I'm feeling a little down, um, a game called Journey by um, That Game Company. That's the company's name is That Game Company. Um, but uh, <laughs> Journey is a 2012 video game. Um, very simple, very brief. And it doesn't initially seem to be hopeful. Uh, it is a story that takes place literally after a planet has effectively kind of nuked itself out of existence. The people are all dead. There's nothing left but ruins. You appear to be the last living thing on this planet, but your job is to undertake a journey. And if you undertake this journey simply by struggling, simply by trying, you bring a little bit more life back into the world. And, and I inevitably play this, end up crying my eyes out, and then I feel better. Um, so uh, I recommend that one if people would like to try it. That sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. True work of art. Um, that is a great answer. I, I can definitely co-sign. Uh, Nora's Twitch stream is fantastic. And if you get the chance to watch it, you should. It is always <laughs> a delight just to hear you cursing <laughs> at any obstacle in the game. I think is, is a revelation. So that that's my short answer. What gives me hope? Excellent. But, but my um, you know my my actually very sincere answer is actually uh, the city we became. Huh. Um, you know I. I actually, it's, it's funny. I, I was on vacation and I read the book and just being on vacation feels like a different world. Huh. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, right. And, and it just distills this, this intangible sense of, um, you know, if it's New York for me, but other people find it in physical community. They find it in online communities. They find it wherever they find their people. Mm. Um, but this sense that there was a place uh, where my people were there and had my back and together we could solve problems. Mm. And and it's always something I felt very, very profoundly about New York City. And for me, it was crystallized after 9-11. I'd only been here a few years and didn't really have any social network yet. They're like friends or neighbors or whatever. And, and that sort of is the moment in which I found them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find an articulation of it in the world because it's not the stories we tell, right? The, the culture tells about, mm-hmm. certainly about New York City or cities in general. Right. And and, and that cities are these living things and that, that we um, we have a relationship with them. Like New York is one of the most important characters in my life. Mm. And and so um, I just found such resonance and reassurance. It was kind of like finally. It was definitely the the waiting to exhale moment. It was like <laughs> ah yes, you know, like yes, like somebody has described um, what mm. this place is, and mm. it's been such a gift to have that in my pocket as we've gone into uncharted territory with this city in such pain, um, and be like, but we have a record. Mm. Uh, of what we are, what we can be. Uh, yeah, I find immense, immense hope. In oh, wow. I mean, well, thank you. That's flattering as hell. But I mean, this is... It's true too. I mean, and, and, but this is, like I said, I'm just trying to hold up a mirror of, of what I've actually seen. I have lived in New York on and off since I was, oh gosh, like three. And, you know, there was a good chunk of time where I spent the school years in Alabama and then I spent the summers in New York But those summers in New York were in the 80s, and crack epidemic was happening. Every summer um, throughout the 80s, there was a riot of some kind, um, Crown Heights, something. And, uh, you know, it was just, I I saw all of that. 
I traveled around the city um, with my dad and then later by myself when I was a teenager. And I saw all of that. But what I also saw was, you know, people would pop the water plugs on a really hot day in the middle of a heat wave. Um, and and everybody would come out and run through the water spray. And the, the ice cream guy would always show up with the creepy little... <laughs> I hate that song. But, um, but, but the ice cream truck would show up and, you know, everybody would freak the hell out and be like, you know, we've got to have this ice cream. And there would be this little spot of joy. There'd be crack files on the ground, sure, but, you know, then you'd push them out of the way and start double dutch. You know, this is this is the New York that I know. Life has always been hard here. It is a difficult city to live in. No joke. But you also form ties with complete strangers to get by because we're all making that struggle. And we can get through if we actually do help each other. And that's just been the New York that I know. So I'm not trying to like, you know, talk it up. It's not propaganda. It's literally just this is what I've seen. This is what I've lived. The last question that we're asking everyone um, is, what are you most hopeful about right now? Hmm. I mean, I guess my biggest hope right now is seeing how many people are kind of, you know, looking around and blinking and realizing, you know, kind of we've been had um, <laughs> on a number of public policy, public health related issues that, you know, we we thought that the people in charge had our best interests at heart. It's becoming so blatant that they don't, um, you know, even as they talk uh, a lot of nonsense. Um, you know, I am hoping that basically the scales have fallen from various folks' eyes and that there will be change and that, you know, I hope that that change will not be violent or anything, but change is necessary at this point. Um, and I hope that enough people are motivated to do so um, that we make it happen because this isn't working. So that's my hope. Yeah, I, I would sort of echo that. I, I'm, I'm hopeful we're in a moment of reset. Mm. What is possible culturally, politically, socially has shifted massively mm. and incredibly quickly. And things that were, you know, beyond my wildest imagination or like you're being irrational, you're being, you know, too wild eyed are talked about as mm. commonplace now. You know, um, the idea that we could actually build that safety net for people that we pretend is there and, has never quite been, um, you know, amidst the the sort of pain and horror and tragedy of the current moment that uh, that we could do that is is profound. Like it feels possible, um, and 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 God, we owe it to everybody, you know. And so I, I think that's really that's the thing that that keeps me going is this sense of like there's a there's an extraordinary opportunity to do right by. Um, by everyone, and especially everyone who's been in such pain, or you know, um, who's been suffering, and so I think that's a that gives me some hope. And 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 then the, alongside that, there's just such a a resurgence of creativity from individual people, like just doing things, wanting to be active, wanting to to show that they've got you know two two hands and and some time, and they can they can make something that gives somebody else comfort or uh, supports them or makes them feel seen. Like, I think that's a really, really powerful thing. So the fact that like ordinary people are rolling up their sleeves and like, what can I do? How can I help out? And 
that the broader cultural dialogue is saying, maybe we challenge some very basic assumptions that we haven't been talking about out loud for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for making time today. Listeners can and should order The City We Became from their local bookstore, please. (laughs) Uh, And when when they hear this or already, if they haven't already read it. Um, Thank you both so much for coming on. This was such a delight. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Open World is a partnership between Philos Future Media and Flash Forward Presents. Hosted by TK Dutess and Rose Eveleth. Produced by Brittany Brown. Intro music by Blue Dot Sessions. Additional sound design by TH Ponders. With engineering by C. You can contact us via social media. We are on the Twitters at Open World Pod. You can email us at hello at openworldradio.com. You can visit openworldradio.com for more about any of what you heard on this show, more links to the amazing creators who we featured here, how to find their work. Also, there are transcripts of each episode up on the website if you want to read those or revisit them. And we really love taking this journey with you. So thanks for coming along for the ride. 